Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart and Vascular Institute at Cleveland Clinic. In each podcast, we aim to provide relevant and helpful information for healthcare professionals involved in cardiac, vascular, and thoracic specialties. Enjoy. I'm Dr. Steve Nissen, and I'm here uh, with Dr. Khaldun Chirachi, uh, who is one of our faculty in the electrophysiology uh, section. Dr. Trachi has been a pioneer in the use of digital technology in medicine, and we thought it would be useful to have a conversation about, you know, where is this going, uh, what are the positives, what are some of the challenges. So how did you get interested in this, in this area? Sure. Well, uh, Dr. Nissen, as you know, um, uh, w the paradigm has shifted. So before, you used to see physicians and scientists working on an idea, working closely with companies on or pharmaceutical industry trying to develop a product that could be a device, could be a pill, could be a medication, could be a test. And then when that uh, generates a device or a procedure or a test, you as a physician, you present it to the patient. Yeah. Now we've seen uh, the paradigm shifting and now we're seeing patients coming to us with these devices. And you have these companies, very innovative, with a little bit of medical background, coming up with actually some cool products every yeah. once in a while and uh, targeting consumers directly. I won't even call them patients, but consumers at large. And where are we as physicians? Well, now we are on the passive end, on the receiving end, when patients come into us, showing us these products. And you know, you look at them and you say, well, I can see the potential of this. So these, the roles have shifted, and now we are on the passive end, and the patient is on the driving seat. So let's talk about some of these things. Uh, you've worked on a number of these areas. Right. Uh, Tell us a little bit about some of the things you've worked on. Sure. Uh, so as you know, I'm an electrophysiologist. And for us, a uh, major part of our work is uh, arrhythmia and detecting rhythm problems. And one of the major obstacles is try to catch an arrhythmia at the time when it's happening. Yes. And that usually generates a lot of monitors and a lot of you know, holters, and a extended lot of monitors. A lot of expenses. And it's always Murphy's Law. You do it an extended period. For us, extended is, is, is 30 days. That's the yeah. longest monitor that's at least in a, in a portable fashion. And it's always Murphy's Law when you're done with the monitoring period, then and arrhythmia, arrhythmia happens. happens. And, and you missed it. I think so, our, our uh, listeners have <laughs> really right. probably uh, had this happen many a time. It certainly happened to time. me. All the time. That generates ER visits, a lot of uh, expenses, etc. So uh, you get to run into a product that for the first time, or using your smart uh, phone or smart device, you can actually record your rhythm strip and you can, for the first time, as a user, you can see what you're recording. So it's no longer this machine that's recording or making some mysterious noise and sending transmission. So you see this for the first time and you get the wow uh, reaction first, but then you say, well, let, let me test it. Let me see if that actually helps our workflow. And uh, this is when, in my mind, the process starts from having a product. This is not the end of the, the, the process, actually the beginning of it. How can I use it? Can, I, can my patients use it? Are we ready as physicians and the healthcare providers ready to use them? So let me, and let that's me what make sure we I understand this. So you have a device that can record the heart rhythm. Right. Uh, and uh, you can buy this as a kind of accessory to your smartphone. Is that, a, is that correct? You're absolutely correct. So the phone is yours and you buy it as, yes, yeah. exactly, as How an accessory. How expensive is it? Uh, relatively speaking to all the medical expenses, are actually very cheap and very affordable yes. and uh, anybody can buy it. And by the way, you're not under the mercy of a physician ordering it. You can just go online and buy it 
uh, yourself. Anybody can. And so have you used this in people that have had, uh, you know, uh, symptoms to, to try to detect when they're having sure. diarrhea? So uh, for, for us and the way I, I, I think about it, before we do anything, we want to make sure that does this device work? Yeah. I think that's the most important question because if it doesn't achieve what it's supposed to do, there's no reason to go to point uh, B and C and D. Yeah. So we actually did a study rather yeah. than just quickly adopting it into clinical practice. As you know, we, a lot of our patients, they have atrial fibrillation, and one of the treatment strategies is to do an ablation procedure. And the way we monitor our patients after an ablation, we provide them with what we call transtelephonic monitor. It's a machine that you hook yourself up to as a patient, and you send a transmission using your phone landline. Phone. It makes this funny noise, and this is how we get the transmission. How, this is how we monitor our patients up until 2018. That's our modality. Now, the reality, a lot of patients don't have landlines. We said, well, let's do a study. This is about four years ago. So our patients after ablation, those who had the compatible smartphone at the time, we also provided them with this accessory. It's a smartphone accessory. With it, you can record your rhythm strip. And at the time, to show you how the technology is evolving fast, at the time, it was just a recorder, and the only way to send it is through email. Ah. And uh, we did, so we uh, collected a cohort of 60 patients post-AFib ablation, and those who were interested, we provided them with this accessory. And we made the comparison between the smartphone recorder to the trans-telephonic monitor recordings, and we had a blinded physician comparing both recordings. And long and behold, it did actually an excellent job. It, uh, it achieved the task with excellent sensitivity That's and specificity. Same diagnosis. Same, same diagnosis, but what's, uh, an eye, what was an eye-opener for me not only the results, but also we did a patient survey. This is a group of patients with average age of 65, and this is about four years ago. So this is not your college students who are now you know, adapted to these technologies. Uh, but when we did the survey, we asked them how easy was it to use. The vast majority said it was very easy to use. They liked and it? They did. Uh, they, get, they got them engaged. You hear from grandparents saying, well, I can show off in front of my grandkids. So this, uh, hearing these stories uh, from, from patients themselves, how they get engaged, how they can see what they're doing, was very valuable. It also gives them, it empowers them, doesn't it? They're, they're sort of a participant. They're not a passive participant in their health. They're, they're an active not. participant. And this is the beautiful word, they become participants. They don't be, they're not just you know, the recipients of, of healthcare delivery, they're actually partners, they're really partners. Yeah. Now, the flip side of this, so we actually did the study, we presented it, we, pre we published it in Heart Rhythm Journal, um, but the, let me take you to real life now. Yeah. All of a sudden, you, you gotta talk about the good and, and the difficulties with yeah. these devices. Uh, all of a sudden, my colleagues will say, well, thanks a lot, Caldoon, for what you did. Now we're getting these flood of emails from, from different people. And this is when you get a reality check about, uh, about these devices, and that's true. And frankly speaking, it's not just a workload, but it could potentially be uh, dangerous when you, for example, if you're using, uh, we, we started getting transmissions from a person who was not even part of the study. And with a little bit of investigation turned out, it was a patient who enrolled, but he was using his wife's phone. So now I'm getting these transmissions labeled with the email of the spouse and not the patient Everything so that can go wrong it's, will go wrong. But you know, that's the beauty of doing these simple studies because you can pick up, you can anticipate some difficulties, some challenges. You will be surprised with a lot of them that you did not expect this was one of them. You also realize that now you're not under the mercy of just the device itself, even if it works. But 
there are a lot of components. In order to have a good recording, the patient is an active participant. So they need to hold still, they need to record, otherwise it will be noisy. Yes. Um, as opposed to a technician hooking and doing a 12-lead ECG, for example. So now let me ask you, do they still have to email it or do you have to come up with a better way? And that's the beauty of having champions who think outside the box. So we actually, uh, we have a platform now. And now uh, if you are a user and you want to use these devices, you don't need to email me directly. But if you sign up for that service, anytime you record, as long as you have Wi-Fi access and any access to the internet, your recording will automatically be transmitted to the cloud. For me as a physician, you, I don't need those emails back and forth. I can just access the platform and access your recordings anytime, anywhere you are in the world and anywhere I am, as long as both of us just have Wi-Fi access. It's getting better. Let's see if we can talk about maybe a, another example or two of kind of evolving digital technologies and, sure. and kind of use of smartphones and some of these things that are making patient care easier and better. Sure, uh, I think the, the second best example is our use of virtual health, uh, virtual medicine and, yeah. and virtual visits. And I think in electrophysiology, we're probably best suited for it, especially for our established patients who are coming from out of state and they want to do follow-up visits. Um, but the way I see it, you know, virtual visit, if you're just going to do the video conferences. Could you help me understand what a virtual visit is? Oh, I'm not sure, sure everybody listening yes, in and no, watching absolutely, is going to understand it. So maybe right, so virtual it. visit, that's what's called distance health as well. When um, for me and my patient, instead of an in-person visit to the clinic, um, we can basically do what almost like a Skype-like type of communication, video conferencing, with me sitting in the office next to my computer, and for the patient, they can use their handheld, their phone, their iPad. You can see them, they can see you. Absolutely. But here's what I think we can be creative about using it. If you think about it, if, if the way that I described it, this will be just a glorified phone conversation that we can achieve through a phone call, right? But when you equip it with these additional devices, with these accessories, when for the first time, not only I have this communication between me and the patient, but I can actually access the recordings that they've done over the last six months. I can make the ar argument that this is actually will be more valuable if I have a video conferencing with data, with recordings that they did over the last several months, is actually more meaningful than one in-person visit with one single 12-lead ECG. Right. So you, you, you gotta be creative and, in the way you do it, and that this is where it becomes very specific to the specialty and the area and the field that you are in. Now, have you done a lot of these virtual, these virtual visits, these electronic uh, video conferencing mm -hmm. visits? For my out-of-state patients, for the regular follow-up, especially when they're doing well, actually they find it very valuable. And yes, I've, I've done them, and they, they actually like the idea and they continue to use it, so it's been very helpful. But you can't examine them. You can't put your hands on, you can't put a stethoscope on their chest, or maybe you can. Well, not yet, I should say. Okay. Uh, but the technology is evolving at, a, at an unbelievable pace. You can actually potentially in the future, you can even listen to heart sounds even remotely. But that's why I started by saying that probably we, ha we are at some advantage in electrophysiology. Look, these patients already, they, they are established with their primary care. They had their echo done. They had. Uh, the, the workup done, they're coming for one specific problem, which is the arrhythmia, and that I can re you know, remotely monitor from a distance. Are there legal issues? So, you know, obviously I'm licensed in the state of Ohio, but I'm not licensed anywhere else. What if, right. I, what if my patient is somewhere in a neighboring state? What, what am I allowed to do and what can't I do? Sure. So, uh, you know, at this point in time, we're just doing it for our established patients, for one specific problem that we've seen them before in the past. Uh, but you're right, and I, you know, personally speaking, I, 
I'm a bit hesitant to offer it for somebody that I've never seen or I, I, I don't know anything about. But it's okay if they're your if they're your patient and they live in Pennsylvania, not Ohio, for you to do this. If it's a follow-up for an existing condition that you saw them for that particular condition, it is fine. Yeah. Is there another example you'd like to share with us of sort of an interesting, evolving, maybe right. not quite there yet? Uh, you're well, on? actually, it's, it's, it's here already, but uh, it will soon be uh, in, a, in a form of a study as well. You know, we, uh, part of our daily work is implanting devices, pacemakers and defibrillators. And if there's any good story about the involvement of technology is the remote check of these devices. So if any patient has a pacemaker, and we routinely check their devices. You check the battery, battery life, all that sort of thing. Everything, including now it's even more. It's, it's really becoming a, a remote monitoring device and not just a passive transmission of the data like battery. Checking thresholds. Arrhythmias, sort of you know, undetected arrhythmias or, or the lead uh, functionality, yeah. even activity level of the patient uh, themselves. So you gain a lot of data. But this started with in-person visit. So patients used to come and take a day off from work and they come and we interrogate the device, we get the report. Now that evolved over time and for the last uh, couple of decades that we had the concept of remote device check. It started with the landline, what we call transtelephonic monitor. When the patient will put the wand over the device and the transmit the data so over the So they have a box line. in their bedroom, let's say, next to their phone. Right. They put a wand over the device. Actively, they, yes. Do they have to phone in, they have to call. That is correct. They have right. to call, Right. they call in, Right. they send the information. That's so right. So it's sort of a, of a process there. Absolutely. Okay. Now that has evolved and it, uh, it now it, it's happening through cellular network. So at the patient's bedroom, there will be this device that will communicate with the pacemaker or defibrillator. Wirelessly? Wirelessly, and through cellular network, we'll send the transmission to the network, and that network we can access and get all the data about the device of that patient. And that's what's called remote device check. Now, the exciting thing now, but now you're still committed to that box living in that bedroom. So if you're in proximity to that area, you can do this, but if you're not, we don't have that capability. And despite all the data about remote monitoring, how it improves outcomes and it improves healthcare costs, and actually some data even suggest improving survival because you monitor these patients more frequently, compliance rate has remained dismal, to be honest with you, with, with compliance and the way that we do it right now. So we're doing something wrong up until now. Now the newest development, your pacemaker, will directly talk to your smartphone, and the smartphone will act as a vehicle to transmit the data. So through Bluetooth signal, the device will talk to the smartphone. The smartphone is only acting as a vehicle to transmit the data. Everybody's connected, everybody has internet access, yes. and that will transmit the data. So if you think about it, you're no longer under the mercy of the wand with the landline. You're no longer under mercy of being in the bedroom. You can pretty much travel anywhere in the world, and as long as you're in close proximity to your phone, and as long as you have Wi-Fi access, which I can't imagine any place in the world now that doesn't have this, we can get your recordings. The sky's the limit here. I was reading recently about a European country that's got a, a pilot program where if you call 911 for a cardiac arrest, they have waiting drones with a automated defibrillator and it knows you're via GPS where you are, and they launch a drone, and a few minutes later it lands with a defibrillator with instructions on how to defibrillate somebody. I don't know if you've read about this. I have, I have, but so here's the thing about uh, one simple observation. 
we're getting our data and our knowledge. I bet you re you read this through regular media and not yeah. in the New England Journal of Medicine. I or read JAMA. it through the regular media, and that's and that's that's fine and that's good. But my my two cents about digital health. There's a lot of noise out there, and it's certainly exciting and it will make headlines. But when you come to real life and you come to my clinic and my colleagues' clinic there's still a big gap between all the noise and the daily work and the daily practice. We're trying to bridge that gap. So yes, it's exciting. I think the sky is the limit. Some people see these wearable devices as tools to, you know, threatening tools for the healthy. I don't think we should be in the business of scaring the healthy people. Um, that time will come to see, well, if you have the, the ability of screening the population, that would be great. Unfortunately, sometimes it's a deficit in our knowledge. So for example, a few seconds of atrial fibrillation on somebody who's completely asymptomatic. What do I do with the information? Now, I don't see this as a problem with the device. I see this as a gap in our knowledge because we frankly don't know what to do. We obviously have to study it, don't we? Exactly, and there's some studies that are ongoing. But at the same time, we have ample opportunity to improve our workflow for our existing patient using these devices. And we'll have to separate the wheat from the chaff. Not every one of these innovations that seems like it's going to be great on paper, when you actually implement it, does it do more good than harm? And That's I think right. it's actually, we're in a dangerous time in many ways, aren't we? Because uh, the regulatory authorities haven't quite caught up with this. And okay. so, you know, right now, if you want to get a, a something that's a medical device approved. You've got to go through a very fairly rigorous process, Food and Drug Administration, et cetera. But if it's an app, it's not so clear what It's happens. not so clear. And even if it's a wearable device, unfortunately, it's almost like it's reversed. They're getting FDA approval. And then we're trying to do the work, trying to test them and try to- Find out if it works. In a clinical setting. Because keep in mind, it's not just about the device. Would patients be able to use it? The majority of patients or consumers, they stop using a wearable device after six months. So there's all these issues about compliance, about ad adaptability, and more importantly also about ourselves and our colleagues. Can we keep up with this workload? I, I always like to make the analogy, a wearable device should not equal a wearable physician. Yeah. And this is the, something that's extremely important if you have these devices and you're just collecting data and you don't know what to do with it, that's a big problem. I'll give you one more example and then maybe we'll We'll close this out, but you know, I know people have been working on this of having smart chips that are involved with uh, medications, so your physician can be notified when you take your medication and when you don't take your medication. Again, I don't know if you followed the development of all of this, but this is a very interesting technology. It is interesting technology, but do you want to be wake, you know, to wake up in the middle of the night about about this? Probably not. But I can tell you that. Let's, let's take a practical example, for example, for, for our specialty in atrial fibrillation. Yeah. With warfarin, I had the numbers of the labs to tell me exactly whether the patient has been therapeutic or not. Yes. With the new agents for anticoagulants, I only have the word of the patient. And now right. I have to trust this in order to perform a cardioversion safely or an ablation safely. So, of course, it's the future. It will, uh, it will, we'll see major changes in the way we practice medicine. We just need to keep an open mind, but we need to take action and be champions in this. The next couple of decades are going to be very interesting indeed. Thank you so much for sharing your perspectives on the evolution of digital health, and thank you all for, for watching. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? 
please subscribe and share the link on iTunes.